Feminist Buzzkills, the show that's currently in a neck brace from watching this week's Supreme Court rulings. Oof. It is unbelievable. Oh my God. I know. <laughs> I'm Liz Winstead and I'm joined by my co-host Mojiela Wodale. Hello. Today we have two amazing guests. First up, Amber Gavin, AAFOG and current VP of Advocacy and Operations at A Woman's Choice. Amber's written a heartbreaking story of a wanted pregnancy that went horribly wrong and is here with us today to talk about it publicly for the first time. I'm very, very excited to hear this story and excited to hear from our other amazing guest, policy director of the Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights, otherwise known as Color. Catherine Riley is here to talk about all the dope goings on in Colorado while also battling the relentlessness of fake clinics in her state. Plus, Dukes is here to drop the latest news about your bathing suit area. Hey, Alyssa. Hey, Alyssa. Hello. Oh, my God. So before you dive in, we haven't, the three of us, talked about how excited we are to get to Atlanta for real. Oh, my gosh. Oh, it's going to be it's going to be fantastic. I know. First of all, we're doing so many cool things there, but I'm I'm so excited every time I get to share a stage with you, Liz. Well, I'm excited because you're just so funny and I'm excited for people to get to know you and see you. And then I guess I will be doing some stand-up for some people that is interesting, but really Baron Vaughn doing stand-up. Have you seen him perform, Alyssa? I never have. This is, I'm, I'm saving it for a sweet surprise for myself. He is an unbelievable stand-up and he is just like also a great activist. So, and, and just relocated to Atlanta a couple of years ago. So he's going to be talking about comedy. He's going to be talking about being a dad, trying to be a feminist dad, also living in Atlanta as a black dude. So it's going to be really, really fun. Well, I'm excited to talk with the members of the Reproductive Justice Collaborative Amplified Georgia and hear about what they're doing to fight all the Georgianess of it all. So you're not excited about Alyssa and I? No, I mean, you guys are incredible and I spend every week with you and I love it. And I'm excited to do it live. Like, come on, guys. I know. Live is so fun. I know because you get to hear Alyssa dropping the news bombs. We're Mm going to break down all of the news of the week. Also, we have the lawyer from It's Always Sunny. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, um, how does he fit in? Well, come and find out, but he does fit in. There is stories behind it and you're not going to know until after the show or if you show up. So mark your calendars, July 20th, Terminal West. Tickets and info are going to be in our show notes, but tell your friends in Atlanta coming down. It's going to be really fun. Nice. Okay. Alyssa, take it away with this week's steaming news dump. All right. Yeah, let's get into it. Um, This week's steaming news dump is like a good roll of two-ply. We're going to get right to the bottom of everything that's going on in the abortion world. First off, scumbags in the South Carolina Senate are pushing another six-week abortion ban since the one female justice in their state Supreme Court has since retired. Now, the Supreme Sausage Fest heard arguments uh, this week on the ban that they previously ruled as unconstitutional. But the bags of scum pushing this ban say, we've changed the language to get around that. Yeah, look, we put the word choice in there now. And you can choose to take a pregnancy test every time you do the late night cha-cha slide. And that way, you'll definitely be able to catch your pregnancy before six weeks. Remember, kids, a pregnancy test today keeps the oppression away. <laughs> Let's travel right outside of Boston next, where the massholes have a bad case of fuck around, and now they're finding out. A woman in the Bay State is suing an anti-abortion pregnancy center after they failed to note her ectopic pregnancy or offer any kind of treatment. So I want you to think of these fake clinics like Ocean Gate, right? They may look safe and legit, but really, they're the healthcare equivalent of trusting you'll be okay going to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean in a pimped out soda can, right? Not recommended. And finally, over in the only American state with a peen handle, turns out that folks have been flocking to Florida since the fall of Roe last year, where abortion clinics are about to surpass Disney World as the state's number one tourist attraction, seeing an estimated 26% uptick in abortion patients. Uh, Maybe those abortion clinics will need something like the Fast Pass Plus so patients can skip the lines, you know, like at Splash Mountain. (laughs) 
Anyway, that's been your steaming news dump of the week. Space stool kids. <laughs> I love that. Um, peen handle. We have to, we have to say peen handle. Yeah, a I lot. think there needs to be more peen handle. Yeah. In our pod. A hundred percent in general, really. I mean, thanks so much, Alyssa. Thanks, Alyssa. Oh my gosh. So um, normally at this time, as you know, Moji and I will break down some stories that we really wanted to get some meat on. And we had some stories prepared, but we interviewed before the stories, a dear friend of ours who had written an article about her much wanted pregnancy that went horribly wrong in ways that were just really profound. And as we listened to her talk and the detail that she went into, we just really wanted to sort of offer up more time for Amber to really lay out her story. Yeah, it was not a quick story. And I felt like every minute she talked was so valuable. A hundred percent. And so instead of popping some news for you now, we're going to take it over to this amazing story. And it, it struck Moji and I even more personally than normal, because when we launched Abortion Access Front, we launched it under the name of Lady Parts Justice, changed the name to be more inclusive. And Amber was the first person I hired. Amber developed our programs department. She developed the programs like Exposed Fake Clinics. And she's the one who helped craft us going out on tour and doing clinic support and helped develop those relationships that we have all around the country. Then Amber transitioned after being with us for four and a half years. She's actually uh, an abortion provider now, which is really cool. And so I saw her a year ago, hadn't seen her since. And then the story drops that she had published. And I read the story and I felt so compelled to have Amber come on and tell what she couldn't tell in a thousand word, you know, op-ed. And um, so I just feel really grateful that she decided to come and speak to us. So without further ado, she was the former programs officer at Abortion Access Front. She is now the vice president of operations and advocacy at uh, Women's Choice Clinics, which uh, serve people in North Carolina and Florida. Please welcome the one and only Amber Gavin. Hi, Amber. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Always exciting to talk to you. And if this is the way that I have to talk to you by, by booking you on the podcast, I guess I will. I guess that's how these things go <laughs> when we're so busy. <laughs> Amber, for those who haven't known you as long as Moji and I, let's just fill folks in a little bit about you and what you do and how how you make a difference in everybody's lives every day. <laughs> well, that was quite an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> I am the Vice President of Advocacy and Operations at um, a Women's Choice Clinics. We have four independently woman-owned and operated clinics, three in North Carolina, in Greensboro, Charlotte, and Raleigh, and then in Jacksonville, Florida. In my role, I have the unique pleasure of um, working very closely with our clinic managers and our frontline staff, helping making sure uh, our clinics run, and then working really closely with coalition partners in both North Carolina and Florida, trying as much as we can to get in front of state legislators and just making sure that independent abortion providers are heard because we're often left out of the conversation, even though we all know we're providing the majority of abortion care in the United States. 100%. So as I said, you know, you started out in advocacy work with Abortion Access Front and moved into patient care. I wonder if that was always in the back of your head or if it was something in the advocacy work that sparked you to pivot. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that I loved so much about Abortion Access Front was that I was, had the opportunity to work really closely with the clinics on the ground providing that care. So I had the unique privilege of speaking to sometimes the frontline staff, sometimes the clinic owners and, and managers, talking about the challenges that they were facing and then seeing ways that we could plug in and support them, whether that was buying their staff lunch or painting or redecorating or um, like at the Raleigh Clinic, uh, we went there and we actually like planted prickly bushes to try to deter the protesters from getting so close to the driveway as patients enter. And the more and more I was working with the providers, the more that 
I felt like that was where I really wanted to be. Like, obviously, supporting them is important and continues to be important. So people should give to Abortion Access Front so they can continue to do that work. But um, also, it just it kind of felt like that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be really supporting our frontline staff. And on occasion, I get to work directly with patients. And it's so rewarding. It's something that I really value. And it's something that I've, uh, and a lot of times, have had the pleasure of having in my um, just healthcare providers. And so that's kind of, I think, why I pivoted. We miss you terribly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you still, again, like we're still colleagues, right? Or compatriots. And you've been working against these uh, these bans and sort of the ever-changing landscape of abortion care in this country, again, as an advocate and as a provider. And then things got really real for you when you were blindsided with a pregnancy challenge of your own that we read about. Can you tell us your story? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of years ago, my partner and I decided that we would like to start our own family. Um, after trying for over a, a year, just like naturally trying ourselves without medical intervention, we still not were able to successfully become pregnant. Um, so typically, um, in order to see a fertility specialist, you need to try for at least a year before that they'll, they'll see you. Went to a fertility specialist, did some drugs. <laughs> Magic. No, did some drugs. Science, did some science. <laughs> yeah. So like uh, letrozole um, and then like a trigger shot to help with ovulation. We were really lucky and uh, that the little magic pills and the trigger shot and the timing and the ultrasounds and blood work and all that, it worked. And we we became pregnant and we were really freaking thrilled. Um we couldn't believe it. And we were ready and excited. Um, so at six weeks, we went in, the provider thought everything looked good. He was like, actually, it looks like you might have twins. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So Andre and I were like, holy shit. <laughs> we are doing it. Yeah. We were like, okay, one and done. We really, really are ready for this. Everything was fine. I was having nausea. I was, it was quite heavy, but I know a lot of people who experience really bad nausea. We see them every day at our clinics. So I didn't think anything of it. Andre and I went to our eight weeks ultrasound. And unfortunately, there was no longer a viable pregnancy. When we went, the provider kind of was like, yeah, there's nothing there. And I was like, what do you mean there's nothing there? Did she literally mean that I do not see anything in your uterus? To be really fair, I didn't. I didn't ask for clarification because I was so upset that I was I'm like, sure. I was like, what the, I don't understand. And so I kind of looked at Andre and we had a moment, obviously, uh, we both were very upset. And then she left the room, the nurse came in because she gave us some privacy, obviously, as I was stopping. <laughs> um, the nurse came in and proceeded to say, oh, the doctor um, prescribed you misoprostol for you to, because I was having no, obviously no symptoms. I thought I was right. still very much pregnant. Um, so she said to misoprostol and I was like, hey, but like, what about Miffy? As we know, Miffy stops the pregnancy hormone. So when you, after you take it within a, like, a, you know, within 24 hours, basically you stop having pregnancy symptoms. And so it's just a kind way to terminate a pregnancy. It, that way, especially one that you really wanted, you're no longer having the after, like all of the effects of still being pregnant. So she was like, we can't prescribe that. And so I was like, already. Hold on, wait. She can't prescribe it because. Because a lot of us have to have special licensing to, to be able to prescribe it. And a lot of people won't do it. And so this is a fertility specialist. Oh, wow. So, okay. This is like news to me. Fully new news. Wow. Yeah. So already I was upset. So I I was like, okay, so I'm not going to take the Misa Prestol. I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to say no thanks. <laughs> um, I also have von Willebrand's disease, which is a clotting disorder. And Misa, as we know, causes heavy bleeding. Talk to me a little bit about, um, for those that don't know about this blood disorder, will you explain just a little bit about what that is and how that would affect if you were to take something that were to shed your uterine lining? So it's a genetic disorder. It's um, a lot of us have what is called like factor eight in our blood, which helps us to clot. I um, a lot of times either am missing it or don't have enough for me to clot properly. Ever since I started my period, I've had really, really, really heavy um, men menses. And so I would remember 
within a 45 minute class in middle school, I would soak through a huge maxi pad and it would go through my pants onto a chair. Literally, that's how bad my periods were. And so, and it, and that's obvious, it's uh, one of the symptoms that they look for in people who have von Willebrand's disease. Um, and so when you're pregnant, your body actually makes it. And so you're pregnant during your pregnancy, you're probably fine, but to force right. the um, shedding of the uterine lining, anything could happen. Yeah. And why risk it? Yeah. So I was like, no, thanks. I'm not going to do that. So I went to a local abortion provider and Andre was like, we just need a second opinion. And I was like, he's not wrong. Uh, we were just told that there was nothing miraculously in my uterus. It just disappeared apparently. So I went in and I didn't even have to uh, at my fertility specialist, I had to have a transvaginal ultrasound here. Indie providers are the best. Um, the provider came in, she, um, the medical director, and she performed my ultrasound abdominally. So I did not have to have another transvaginal probe. She located the gestational sac and said, yes, and clearly it's here. Um, I'm just, unfortunately, your pregnancy is not viable. Like that seems like the way you say it. It doesn't take the pain away, but that other shit just sounds gaslighty and weird. It was so, I was so angry. Like I was so angry and hurt. Um, And then so compassionately, she was like, this is, you know, I'm really sorry, but this is your body knowing what's best for you and getting, and it's helping you get rid of a pregnancy that's, that can't sustain. And it was so compassionate. And again, this is like, all, all of our care is so segmented yep. in the U.S. If we could just have a little more like cross and the folks who are actually, you know, I just wish my fertility specialist had a little more of what my abortion provider had. So she was like, also, by the way, absolutely no miso. You need to, we need to get you in for a procedure. Um, she pre- referred me to a hosp- the local hospital. Um, I walked in there like, okay, we're going to perform an M- MBA. And I was like, no, no, we're not. Tell folks what an MBA is. So it's a manual vacuum aspiration. Um, And so it's just like a little instrument. It's really easy in and out. Only take a few minutes, but I very much did not want to be awake. I wanted to be sedated for my procedure just because I, you know, I know exactly what tools I knew exactly what would be used. And it just felt like it was too much for this very wanted pregnancy. So I called three different doctors within my network, like OBs, um, and everyone couldn't get access to an OR. What? Yeah. And because of my bleeding disorder, I couldn't do it at the independent clinic because it was too high risk for them and needed to be done in a hospital setting. I had a non-viable pregnancy that I was just carrying around for multiple days before I could get into an OR. Oh my. That's heartbreaking. God, Amber. You have no idea. Like I... I can remember and I can like physically feel the this deep, deep ache and sadness. Like it felt so cruel to me mm-hmm. um, that this was the way our, our health care system is. So <laughs> I get, um, I finally get in there. I have an incredible surgeon, um, an abortion provider. She, we, the procedure and everything went well. I literally am, I am so grateful for, for her. And then there was the horrible experience I had with the anesthesiologist. No. Yeah. So he came in and asked me what arm I wanted the IV. I said, I have best, better, the best luck that I have with blood work or anything is my left arm. Mind you, I've been taking blood work every week, you know, because of my pregnancy, I knew which one worked. Um, he decided, he was like, I'm going to look at your right one. Okay. So already we're not trusting me. Cool. Oh, wow. He's- yeah. <laughs> Straight off the bat. Why even like, ask? Oh. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay. Um, he proceeds to go, and I've never had this done in my entire life. So I don't know if this is unusual. I feel like it's unusual. He brought out an ultrasound machine to find veins in my arm. What? Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. So apparently you can, they're like anesthesiologists and stuff for people who have like veins or whatever like that are hard to find or a roll or whatever, they can use an, like an ultrasound machine, a special one to find your your veins to stick you so they don't have to stick you multiple times. So that part I was like, oh, that's fascinating. This is really cool. Like I was trying to get into it because, you know, it completely distracts you from what's actually happening. I was like, wow, I've never seen this machine. And he proceeds to, he's pressing really hard and he is like moving it around and he's like, see your veins rolling. And he's like showing and I was like, oh, that's cool. Okay. 
then he finds like a, a vein and he's pressing down and he's like, do you see that? That's what it will look like when you when you're pregnant and it'll have a, actually have a pregnancy. It looks that's what a fetal heartbeat looks like. No, he did not. Yes, he did. How dare. Wow. He did. And then he said to me, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, actually, I work in abortion care. He goes, well, let's not get political. And then he proceeded to tell me that the only reason that my care was okay was because it was therapeutic. Oh, my God. I wonder if he was Trisha Cotham's uh, anesthesiologist also, because uh, she seems to have talked her way out of her abortion in very many verbal gymnastics. Yeah. Um, That's unbelievable, Amber. A few days later, I, you know, I was still off from work because I honestly, days after my procedure, I couldn't really be by myself. Everything it felt, I felt so lonely that being by myself was really, really overwhelming. Um, I just, all I could think of was this deep sadness and aching that I had. So my mom was like, we're going to go shopping. Um, And so we went to the mall, went to Nordstrom. My mom was trying on clothes and I got a call from my physician and she proceeded to tell me that the pregnancy tissue came back and it, in fact, it was a pregnancy. It was not an, an embryo. It was a molar pregnancy. Had you had miso or had you done abortion pills, would you have had a biopsy regardless no. So if I would have had uh, miso, I would have just like with my, like, as my fertility specialist, per, like said, I would have terminated while well, we would presume at yeah, home, right? Yeah. Like I would have done it. So in the privacy of my own home, which means I would have just, it would have, you know, come out in a pad or I would have flushed it down the toilet, et cetera. So did they have an inkling to biopsy this for any reason other than they just happened to do that with a high risk person? Or is it just routine surgery? That's the part that I was yeah. like, you know, I want to say thank God for Amber's blood disorder, because you know, in a weird way, I'm just mm-hmm. like, this is what got to this. So talk about like what made them say we have to biopsy this. Yeah. So in the hospital setting, any like products from a surgery or, you know, products of conception, they will send away to pathology to be tested and examined. Um, so because of that, However, if it were like, if I was to have the procedure, if I did have it in an independent clinic, I think potentially when the provider looked at the products of conception, they would have seen that there was no, um, there was no, like there was no fetus, right? So it, what happens with a molar pregnancy is that an egg is fertilized by one or two sperm. And this is a complete, so there's two different types of molar pregnancy. So there's a complete molar pregnancy and a partial molar p- pregnancy. The complete is when an egg that has no DNA is fertilized by one or two sperm. It does not actually create or form an embryo. It actually forms a cyst-like grape cyst kind of. Um, and so it kind of is just like a growing cyst that multiplies inside of your uterus. So with a molar pregnancy, there was no point, like it wasn't like an embryo formed and then developed into that. There was no point when there was an embryo. Once it started growing, it was already this molar pregnancy that was doing its own non-embryotic thing. Right. Because there was only two sets of male chromosomes. There was no female chromosomes, right? So is there a, is there cardiac activity? (laughs) It's so bizarre. So I think what they were must've, the only thing I can think of at the six week pregnancy that they were seeing is that there was two sperm. And so like, I, I don't know, like, I don't, I don't, I'm not a doctor to be really fair. So I don't know. Um, but I just, it, 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 it's really confusing. I don't know if it were a partial molar pregnancy, it could potentially become a, uh, an embryo, a fetus. And so there is actually DNA from the egg and I'll probably like, um, a, I think it's like also two sets of male chromosomes. Either way, in a partial molar pregnancy, there is a possibility of an embryo forming. With mine, there was not. So how would a molar pregnancy, like what is a way that it could have been treated in a a state with a total abortion ban that could have been like, just was your level of care, which seems like still not the adequate level of care. Like you had to walk around for several days without getting the care you needed, but like how much worse could it have gotten? Yeah, that's a great question. And something that I, when I had my second DNA was sobbing about (laughs) 
Um, because I kept thinking, wow, I'm so fortunate. I can get this care. I have access. I have the resources. I have the know-how to fight and advocate for myself. I'm like, I'm privileged, right? In so many ways because of that. And I think about the folks who we've seen news articles in Texas and Oklahoma who have had molar pregnancies, went to the hospital and literally have to go wait in their cars until like they're bad enough. And I think that's the thing that's really scary when I'm looking at like this 12 week ban that's about to go in effect uh, in North Carolina and, you know, the bans that in total like complete or near total bans uh, in the surrounding areas. What I think about is when laws say that there are exceptions for rape, incest, or life endangerment of the mother, et cetera, these aren't workable in reality. What happens is hospitals, clinics, we all are bound by these laws that say, if the pregnant person's life is endangered, then you can take action. Okay, when is that? Um, Well, we have to consult an attorney. Um, So the hospitals have attorneys on call that they call and say, hey, is this sick enough? So is this person sick enough? No, not yet. Well, when is sick enough? When is it appropriate to provide those care? And then as a patient, sometimes they have to go. But so that means they're going to a medical board. They're going to attorneys um, to provide these cares because doctors are afraid of losing their licenses. So like they're not going to be able to provide care to more people. They're afraid of being sued um, by the state, by a patient. There's so many things that are, are in play here. And I think that I think that's what's really scary is that we have just like arbitrators that are trying to interpret laws that are not clear and are trying to guess when a life is at risk and when they should be able to take action. Because you telling this story, it doesn't sound like you were ever sick enough, you know, like it, you were never sick enough. You were still dealing with all the things that people deal with when they have to wait to get sick enough. Like knowing that this is not going anywhere, knowing that like your body has, is not doing what you want it to do. And that, and that relief exists. It's not like they're like, oh, what can be done? It exists. <laughs> you just can't access it because of these bans. To complete your story, Amber, the tragedy and the loss of you having this, this pregnancy that is called a molar pregnancy, the tragedy and the loss of of a wanted pregnancy and and the navigation that you had to go through is tragic enough. But what you haven't told us yet is what the results are or can be from a molar pregnancy. And this story doesn't stop here. No, unfortunately it doesn't. Um, I had to be scheduled every week after that, after that phone call in Nordstrom saying that I had a complete molar pregnancy, I had to have blood work. (laughs) taken. Um, And it's your HCG levels. And that's, again, testing of like if you're you're pregnant. Um, So every week, it was another person being like, oh, are you pregnant? No, no, it turns out I'm very, very much not pregnant. It just looks like I'm pregnant. Um, So my levels kind of maintained around the 2000s. And then unfortunately, it just drastically jumped. And that's when um, my provider called me again and said, hey, We didn't, you know, there's a chance of this happening. We didn't think it would. We thought we got all the tissue, but clearly we did not. Um, This means that these cells basically burrowed into my uterus and were kind of like creating their own home and multiplying. Um, And so I would need to see a gynecological oncologist, which is where I was the morning that we got the DOPS decision. I literally was sitting there and sent out a press release. Um, And then he walked in and we were like, wow, this world is crazy. And he said in that meeting, he told me that there were a few options. He thought my best course of treatment was to have another DNC or DNE and to try to remove and scrape the uterus and make sure all the tissues and all of the any basically anything left over was completely emptied from my uterus. I also had to immediately before that, before I even saw him, um, the doctor who called me to tell me that I had um, that, you know, my levels had changed and I needed to I had to get an X-ray and a CAT scan to make sure that the the the, basically it's a cancer, (laughs) these cells that can turn into a cancer. These cells had multiplied burrow through my uterus and jumped to my lungs. That was their biggest concern is that it could have jumped to my lungs. Um, And also it could have spread to other organs, but apparently the lungs are like what 
they're most concerned about. So I immediately went and I was like, holy God, that's so scary to think about that this pregnancy literally turned into something that was could potentially take over my entire body and cause cancer. Yep. And you still weren't sick enough, Amber. Exactly. That's the thing. <laughs> so, and then he said, if the second, after the, you know, my second procedure, if it didn't remove, like if we didn't get it all or it didn't go away after monitoring my blood again, I'd have to have chemotherapy to completely remove it. And it would be three times a week that I would have to have chemo. Like that's, that's crazy from a pregnancy. And this is a decent level of care. And I remember after the Dobbs decision, some states, because of these abortion bans are like, we're not even looking at pregnant people until they hit 12 weeks. And like, you are not even at 10 when all of this came out. And if doctors are afraid to provide any level of care to a pregnant person, how are they going to catch the early things that could lead to cancer? Well, so that's one of the things I was, I think, really scared about is I thought about the people who can't get, you know, appointments until later in care. If I would have been later, I wonder if it, if it would have turned into cancer and if it would have spread and just like how bad it could have gotten. But like you said, within two weeks, like it changed into a molar pregnancy. Like what if like I had let that, you know, pregnancy grow until 12 Mm -hmm. weeks? Like what would my, what would things look like for me? I don't know. Terrifying. You've been such a strong advocate since I've known you and in every level. I'm just so appreciative of you telling your story. And this this happened about 13 months ago. Is that correct? Or about a year ago around? A year ago. Did you think that you would ever be able to tell this story? Because the pain is very much real. And when you decided to tell it, what is it that you want people to learn and hear from your story? Because it's it's very personal. Our abortions are personal. I get very resentful that people have to tell them and justify their abortions. Mm-hmm. It makes me, you know, and so when people do, though, I also under- appreciate how much it does help others. Yeah. So, yeah, a year ago, I would have absolutely never thought I could tell it. Um, I couldn't even tell my closest friends what was happening because it was crushing to even name what was happening to myself. I had to have sometimes in some instances, my mom or my sister tell people so that way they could support me um, without me having to tell them. Um, So it is crazy to think about here I am very publicly sharing um, my story. But the reason that I did is because my care was truly life-saving. And it doesn't matter if it was a molar pregnancy or not, even if it was just an unwanted pregnancy. Every pregnancy is so unique. We're all so different. We never know what's happening in someone else's body or in their lives. And having all these barriers and hurdles and people telling me what's best for me and not really knowing me or it's scary. And it's, you know, it's really hard. Um, And so I think the reason that I wanted to share my story was. For people to see how complex pregnancy is, how unique it is, how personal and private it is, I wanted to connect with people. I wanted to connect with people who feel alone, who ne- who've maybe have, have had a molar pregnancy. And when you go to the support groups, there's not a lot of support for you. Um, it's so unique and rare. And pe- I think it's even more isolating in that way. I wanted to share it for that reason. I wanted to share it. So hopefully people who may be on the fence about abortion kind of stay on the fence and are like, okay, it's not for me, but I support you having it. And I support other people having it. So I hope like, especially those people, I, you can see how real and raw my experience was. And I think so many other people have that, you know, similar experiences and you can see that we're humans and we're making choices that are best for our lives and our families. And I hope that you allow other people to do the same and not vote against their interests or try to take those that, that, you know, essential health care away. I think that's the real reason I wanted to connect and, and draw connection and empathy. And hopefully for people who don't normally, you know, hear or or maybe you're fearful of talking about an abortion to kind of hear it from someone who share my experience. So that way it humanizes us and we really can connect that way. Well, you definitely did, Amber. Thank you so much. It was like, it's a great reminder and 
we often don't get to control the narrative around abortion. It's often the other side. And they often like to statistically talk in dehumanizing terms. And I think every time there's a face, it matters. And, you know, you're making, you're making a big difference in people's lives. And I feel grateful and I feel honored that you came in and shared the story with us. I am so grateful that y'all gave me a platform to do so. So thank you. Thank you. Amber Gavin, thank you so much. And keep fighting the fight on top of all of this. You're providing care for folks every single day. And I want to have you back on so we can talk about the amazing petition in Florida. We have a lot to talk to you about. So we're going to have you on again to get all the things about Florida. And also you are providing care in two states that are the last bastion of abortion in regions that are really hard hit. So lots to talk to you about. Thank you for all you do. Thanks, y'all. Read Amber's story and share it. Link is in our show notes. And if you want to support Amber, she has asked if you're a registered Florida voter, sign the petition to put abortion on the ballot in Florida in 2024. It takes two minutes to print, complete the form in blue or black ink and mail it or drop it off at a petition hub. That link will also be in the show notes. And now Liz, for the party game that is faster than Monopoly and more fun than Taboo. Six degrees of abortion. And this is when I take a story from the news and Liz has six chances to link it to abortion. Let's see if I can stump her this week. You feeling lucky? Try and stump me. I feel, I do feel lucky. You feeling lucky? I don't. Well, this one's actually not the hardest one, but I thought it was really fun. So a former NBA player, Kim Un Jong enthusiast and 90s icon, Dennis Rodman, Uh, rocked up to Houston Pride in a cute little plaid skirt and a shirt with his face on it. And for some reason, the people following him had no idea who he was, I guess, because they were like, oh, Dennis, what are you doing? Why are you wearing this? And I'm like, do they know? He's been doing this for like 40 years. Like my whole life, Dennis Rodman's been wearing dresses and wigs and hanging out. Anyway, I need you to link Dennis Rodman to abortion in six steps. I will. I feel like... He's one of Boa for Evs. Ah, he was on, was he on the cover of Vogue in like a wedding dress and a wig again in like the 90s? Like, come on, dude. I know, that is like his jam. So I'm like, his followers clearly didn't do three more Googles. Come on. I don't think they're his followers. Oh, like these mm-hmm. are randos. Like you wouldn't follow Dennis Rodman and be like, why are you in a Boa? Why are you in a dress? Like, that's so weird. <laughs> uh, anyway, so my six degrees are Dennis Rodman dated Madonna. Mm-hmm. My dear friend Joe Henry is married to Madonna's sister Melanie. Melanie Ciccone, uh, for years ran an incredible music studio in New Orleans. Now they live in Pasadena. Melanie's awesome. And um, so Dennis Rodman to Madonna, Madonna to Melanie, Melanie to my friend Joe Henry, Joe Henry to moi. That works. I also want to mention that sadly Madonna's in the hospital, but she's stable now. That was another idea I'd had for this week. Oh my God. And I would have gone the same route. Or I know. I could have, or, <laughs> or I could have gone Sandy Bernhardt with mm, Madonna. That's true. That's a, that would have been even faster. You really could have done that in three. I could have done it in three, but I had to, <laughs> you know, I had to drop a name. I had no. to bring it around to me. Listen, I like to hear the Chicone name at all As times. though I am abortion somehow. <laughs> I am abortion. So that was weird. pretty good. Well Thanks. done. I'm, I well thank you. Done. Well done on you. I thought for sure you were going to do the bear for some reason. I, you know, I wanted to, except for I've not watched that show. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. I thought for sure it was going to be the bear, but thank you, Moji. I was, it was really nice to just take a second um, and have a little bit of levity because the show has been incredibly intense. Yes. And now we're going to pivot to, I guess this is like a medium spice. This is like a, I feel like it's a little nicer. You know, we're going to Colorado and Colorado net net is good, right? Colorado is one of the, one of the better places to be in this country. Are you abortion yeah, right this minute? And for so sure. our guest is actually going to give us mostly good news. Yeah. yeah. So I'd like to introduce Catherine Riley, the policy director of Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights, otherwise known as COLOR. And COLOR is the only Latina-led reproductive justice organization in Colorado. Kat, thanks for joining us. Hi, Catherine. Hey, Catherine. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us. We're so excited to talk to you. And can you just kick us off by telling our listeners about COLOR Latina? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I'm so happy to be here with you all. Thank you for inviting us. 
Color is the Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights, and we are based in Denver, Colorado. We are the only Latina-led and Latina serving reproductive justice organization in Colorado, and we're celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. What? Woo! 25 years Thank of leading you. the way. I love that. Yes, we're super excited. We've been partying the whole year and have six months to go. <laughs> 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 so we do a lot of things. We've started from the bottom and now we're here. <laughs> We've started in like really grassroots organizing, education and programming and in the last few years, we've really developed our policy side of things. So I'm the policy director. We'll be talking more about that, running bills, passing them, blocking harmful bills. We have a Spanish language radio show that's been going for 10 plus years. We do programs for young folks. We have a fellowship. So we're really out there trying to, to do as much as we can for the Latina community here in Colorado. And really doing it in a reproductive justice lens. So that's super yes. excited. So we're going to get back, of course, to all of that work, but we're just past the anniversary of the Dobbs decision and it's still weighing on our mind. So one of the questions we're asking our guests is, where were you when you heard the Dobbs decision and how did you react? Wow, that makes me kind of emotional just hearing that question. Actually, I was on maternity leave. So I was um, lucky enough to not be working, which I think was kind of a blessing at the time. I was really able to process on a personal level and not have to jump into like rapid response work mode, which unfortunately a lot of other folks and colleagues in the movement didn't have that opportunity, but I was at home. I had just had a baby. I was seeing the news. I was trying not to get wrapped up too much into like, what can I do? And more about like, okay, how can I sit with this? How can I continue my leave, rest up so that I'm back and ready to go when I return to work in August of last year? Because rest is revolutionary. Rest is a revolution <laughs> for sure. But, you know, and we know that just a couple of months before the Dobbs decision, Colorado signed the Reproductive Health and Equity Act into law, which codified abortion rights and hopefully defended against calling a fetus a person with rights. And so it's kind of like, there must have been a little bit of like, oh my God, thank God we did that. But then also, oh my God, what are they going to do now that states can do whatever they want with what's happening? You know, codification can be so tricky. So I'd love to just hear a little bit about not only are we a year out from Dobbs, but you're a year out from really doing some hard work passing this Reproductive Health Equity Act. What do you think some of the most effective parts of Color's work was in getting this monumental legislation through all of the different hoops? Yeah, so I think that a lot of us here in Colorado saw the writing on the wall. We saw SBA in Texas. We knew that Dobbs was coming down the line. We were not hopeful. I think we had to do a lot of convincing folks here that are not in the reproductive justice or repro rights movement, like, hey, listen, we know what's coming. We see the Supreme Court. Please listen to us. This is a really serious issue. And people did not believe us. And Isn't so that frustrating? So Can we just talk about that for a second? Because <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we talk so much with folks and the not being believed part when your expertise is leading. And I'm not talking about anti-abortion folks. I am talking mm -hmm. about the well-meaning, supposedly on our side people. Yes, exactly. We were banging our heads against the wall. They were saying, don't want, don't run Raya right now. Wait until the fall, run a ballot measure. You'll be totally fine. You'll be safe. And we had to beg them to let us run this bill. And thank goodness we did because obviously the Dobbs decision came down, but we had another city here in Colorado, even with Rhea, try to ban abortion last mm -hmm. November, December. So oh, do you have a shitty sanctuary city? Yeah, they want to be. They, they want to yeah. be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so had we not had the Rhea protections, they would have been successful. So here we are all the time like, hey, just listen to us, please. You're going to look good when you sign the bill. Just let us do the work on the back end. <laughs> It feels like they're trying to place us in some sort of like antiquated hysteria mode that is really frustrating. Yep. Yep. I would agree. 
So what was the work that Calor did specifically to help push this Reproductive Health and Equity Act over the humps that it needed to become law? Yeah, so Rhea was, you know, it was short, but sweet. It wasn't a complex or complicated bill at all. I think it was only like three or four pages. It did those three things that you mentioned at the top of the show. We gave everyone the right to choose or refuse contraception, the right to give birth or terminate via abortion, and then we also prohibited fetal personhood. So it was like straight to the point. And I think one of our biggest successes and I can talk about this all day because we've continued this strategy prior to Raya, but then also since then, is we took it out of the repro space. We are going around there doing the real reproductive justice work that is bringing in those intersections. So talking to folks in labor, in immigration rights, and climate justice, talking to all these different groups across issue areas and explaining to them and helping educate and organize their base around abortion, why abortion bans are racist, all of the barriers to access, how even legality does not equal access, which we can talk about later. Like now we have Rhea, but what's next? And so really taking it out of the repro space was really cool. We had over 50 plus organizations across the country and in Colorado sign on. Some of them have never signed on to an abortion bill before. And so I think for me, that was my favorite part. I got to just talk to and get to know and help inform people on what this means for their communities. I love that. And I think that that's one of the things sometimes in this movement we miss that like abortion touches on everything, on all things, on every issue that everyone we care about cares about should be caring about abortion the same way. And I think people like to silo themselves, silo themselves into little things. What I also love is that this year, Colorado said, hold my beer, and then went on to pass legislation that protects gender affirming care yeah. and protects people traveling to Colorado, which is one of our abortion haven states for abortion and gender affirming care. And was the first legislature to pass a bill outlawing administering the dangerous so-called abortion reversal. However, <laughs> and I'm like, let's take a moment and enjoy that. Yes, I'm snapping. <laughs> After they passed it, this anti-choice clinic called Bella Health and Wellness, which is a really misleading name, challenged it and the state decided it wasn't going to enforce that part of the law, which is a key example of like, you get over the hurdle, you get the bill passed, but there's still a lot more steps that need to be done to protect the public. Can you talk about the process of getting this bill through the legislature, especially post-ops, and what are the next steps to give it some teeth? Yeah, especially the abortion reversal that's piece. That's mostly, yeah. The other woof. part is still there. It's the abortion reversal that's being challenged. Oh my gosh. And this is the stuff I'm dealing with day in and day out now. So it's fresh on my mind. I think that's something a lot of folks don't realize is you can pass a bill and then after, during implementation, it can look nothing like it did when you passed it. And so that's really what we're trying to do is make sure that it looks like the law that was signed. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, Bella Health and Wellness, we... I wanted to say their name because I'm like, if anyone hears, don't go there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And that happened to us actually at an event. Somebody came up, pulled up their phone and said, um, I just heard your speech on fake clinics, anti-abortion centers, is this one of them? I just went there last week. And so we had to walk her through the whole process. She was going through a miscarriage in that moment. And they said, oh, you're cool. Just stay at home. So yeah, that's the harm. We all know oh, the harm. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was wild, wild. And I think that like, we sometimes get in our heads and when we're talking about, you know, fake clinics constantly, and we're talking about the harm that they do constantly amongst ourselves, I don't think there's enough to really talk about it. And when you have a fake clinic like Bella Health and Wellness, you know, it sounds like a place that's inviting. It sounds like a place that you could go if you needed miscarriage management or mm -hmm. needed to talk about like how to navigate your abortion situation and knowing that they are so insidious and also knowing that they are pushing this abortion reversal narrative, which, you know, a year ago, that was like the OG sort of conspiracy theory around abortion was like, yeah, you can take a bunch of progesterone and then it will just stop your abortion. And it's like, what? That is <laughs> yeah. an untested piece of quackery that now some states are forcing doctors to actually recommend it. Yeah. And it plays on this idea that people who have abortions regret them. And we know that's not true. 
Right. We know what is it? 99% of people who have an abortion, myself included, do not regret that decision. Right. Not a single moment. Yeah, exactly. I That's the part that really bothers me. I mean, there's so many, but that's one of them the most because it gets in people's heads. Like you're going to regret this. You're going to be depressed. You're going to be grieving forever. And that's just not the case that we hear from community, from storytellers, from anyone. No. And also, I just want to say, for the small percentage of people that do regret their abortions, you cannot legislate your regret or place your regret in a centered space mm-hmm. and, and have that dictate how others feel. Otherwise, end marriage, you know, never get bangs. Like there's just, <laughs> you know, don't take tequila off the shelves. <laughs> I, I, you know, I mean, the, the list of things one regrets in their life mm-hmm. is way longer. Yeah. And an abortion is normally not on that list for anybody. Yeah. So about the abortion pill reversal, we knew that we wanted to touch on this topic in the legislation. We followed what Connecticut did around the deceptive advertising piece. They were successful there. We were in talks with them the whole time. Like, what did you do? How did you pass it? How was your attorney general? So we took that first part of the bill and we did that piece. And then the second part, we were really thinking like, we need to go further. Mm -hmm. We need to go further. This is a harmful practice. It's unethical. Providers should not be administering this unproven, unethical treatment to folks. And so we did a lot of research. It's it's exactly how you said it. It's not going well at this point. They made us put rulemaking into the bill, which means that now the medical and the nursing boards have until October 1st to come up with rules based on all the comments they're going to get from whoever in Colorado and elsewhere would like to submit comments. So it, I mean, it's being bombarded by the antis to say the least. And they're gonna take all these comments, all the available data, come up with rules by October 1st and decide if they're gonna allow this piece of the bill to be enforced or not. And so we're really right now battling the quantity of antis that are submitting comment with wanting to submit quality comment on our end. So we don't need to be like them and just repeat the same thing over and over and over again. We're coming with experts, scientific researchers, providers, and storytellers who have engaged with an anti-abortion center or a fake clinic and with abortion pill reversal in quotes so that we really make sure that our side just is just as grounded in fact. That's mm-hmm. all we're trying to do. And so we're hopeful they're going to roll on our side. We know that we have the science and the data. It's just a long process to get through. You know, it's so frustrating too, as we sit and listen to and wait for this Mifepristone ruling to happen, right? And they're citing some bullshit through the mail, 1858 grant administration law. And also since 1988 in Europe and in and the United States since 2000, safely 5 million people have used the abortion pill. And they... And they are desperately trying to take it away where this abortion reversal quackery, it's literally some horrible doctor had 200 people in a weird ass study that was not peer reviewed, nothing. That's it. And that shit gets passed into law and forced down people's throats unethically. The hypocrisy is just staggering. Mm hmm. That's exactly right. We're lucky to have the doctor on our side who did conduct the only IRB approved study. And so he submitted comment. And so we're just feeling really good and positive, but yeah, just the pain. It's a pain. Woof. Yeah. I live part of the time in Minnesota and in our big States, you know, they're very complex, right? It's like the repro roller coasters. A lot of times Colorado runs the gamut of like profoundly QAnon Lauren Boebert types to dope radicals. And then there's an independent streak that can go both ways. And I remember when I was in the infancy of starting this organization and Colorado state legislature was like profoundly anti-abortion and in 10 years, y'all flipped it and you're nailing it in large work because of your work. And so I think we touched on this a little bit, but you were one of the first orgs to really understand that abortion and reproductive justice polls better than any politician. 
And so what I wanted to know was when you were out flipping the narrative and talking to folks, what kind of narrative did you use when you were talking to people, especially around RIA and really getting people to rethink and understand that um, their freedoms were being taken away? I think one of the things that we used and that we didn't have to look too far to find is that it's not just abortion they're coming for, right? Like they said that in the Supreme Court decision, birth control, gay marriage, like they're coming for all of us. They're coming for all of our rights. And so once we get people to understand, hey, this is about so much more, it's just like a ball rolling down the hill, right? It's going to pick up speed and then they're just going to start taking things away. So really listening to what the other side is saying, because they say it loud, clear, open, they're not shy. And so I think people, again, like having to convince folks to run Raya, it's the same kind of thing, like really listen to what they're saying because they're not being shy. That was one of them. I think the other, the other messaging tactic that we used is that the majority of the country, even in these red Southern states, do support abortion or at least support someone being able to make their own decisions. Even if they don't support it and they would never have an abortion, they support allowing someone else to have that personal bodily autonomy. And so I think talking about that, talking about, you know, why someone would need abortion, what are the real stories, having real people tell their stories, having people like me who have had an abortion go knocking on doors and really listening to someone who may start the conversation on one side and then little by little you start to understand, okay, they have people they know that were in this situation, or even if it's not about abortion, it's about access to healthcare in general. Do you live in a rural area where accessing birth control is hard and you can see how an unintended pregnancy can happen? And so I think really making those personal stories more available to folks, I think really listening when they're trying to explain their side too, even if you want to reply right away, like you'll get that chance, but just listen a little bit. And so I think that really helped for us and being really connected to the Latina community here in Colorado has helped. They showed up in full force for the No on 115 ballot that we defeated in 2020, I believe. Yes. That was the abortion later in pregnancy. And the Latino voters were the ones who carried that home for us. And so we know that they're with us. We know they want to be heard. We know they want to be connected with. And so we're out there just making sure that these folks have an organization that they trust and can go to. We know that we're going to be okay. That's awesome. I mean, I think that's the whole thing. I think the personal narrative with the facts, because it's, we often, we talk so much about how sick we are of the horse race and how pundits have the audacity to only talk about reproductive health rights and justice as sort of a political football and what it means for one side or the other. And it's really gross. And to, to, to bring the stories out and to have people think about the people in their lives who are affected by this, including themselves, I think is a winning strategy. Thank you for all you do. You're incredible. And your work <laughs> is incredible. You. Thank you. Catherine, we're going to put all of your stuff in the show notes. We're going to have people follow you where they can donate and all that stuff. Yay. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. This was so good. Again, thanks, Kat. Donate to Color and follow them on socials at the links in our show notes. Also in our show notes, you can find the link to Color's Bonfire Store to support them by buying 25th anniversary merch. Ooh. And as always, we remind you the best and most up to the minute resource on accessing abortion care and funding for your care is I need an A.com. And Liz, that's our show. Wow. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Amber, for sharing your story. That's right. And if you like this kind of programming, come on, like, subscribe, and show us some love with a five star rating and stay connected on social media at Abortion Front. Let's make a difference and have some fun doing it. Like, subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, get there, go there, do there. And of course, it wouldn't be a show without another annoying promo about us being in Atlanta. But come on, get your tickets for Right, right. We're going to Atlanta. We're going to Atlanta. Did we mention we're going to Atlanta? At Terminal West, July 20th, 8 p.m. I'm doing stand-up with Baron Vaughn. We got Alyssa. We have folks from Amplify Georgia, all these cool dope people. Link is in our show notes. You can go to our website and buy tickets. Also, 
a surprise appearance that somehow will feel organic from the lawyer from It's Always Sunny. Y'all, we got a lot of stuff going on. I really am so excited to see how that works out organically. <laughs> and I have faith in us. Looking for where you might fit in to do some abortion activism? We've got a five-part activist training series, Operation Save Abortion at operationsaveabortion.com. And visit our super cool activist calendar, which is full of local and national actions and educational opportunities. Check out operationsaveabortion.com. We say operationsaveabortion.com almost as much as we tell people we're going to be in Atlanta for a show. That's important information for everyone. (laughs) I feel it's true. Also, we are off next week, continuing with 4th of July celebrations, but I'm going to recommend some stuff. Re-listen to our Dobbs episode. If you are looking for something to do, listen to that because it's the breakdown of the entire year of the hellscape where we're in. And prepare yourself because when we come back, it's going to be so dope because we'll be back July 14th and we will be broadcasting from Netroots Nation with some incredible guests. We have Walker Fitz from the Midwest Access Coalition, who's going to talk about all of the logistics it takes to help someone get to the abortion they need and comedian and OG AAF road warrior, Joelle Johnson will join us. Oh my gosh. She's so funny. She's so funny. Also join our Patreon. You'll support great content and get cool FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and all of our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. FBK is edited by Ruby DeTournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. That's right. That's our show. So finally, we leave you this week with Ryan Foley, a pastor showing his whole fake Christian ass by saying women aren't the boss of him. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be silent. Listen to this part. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Meaning was it the man that fell or was it the woman? It was the woman who fell. And just like King Solomon, he said that he never met one righteous woman. Women are to be quiet in the church, dress modestly, and to be silent, never taking a place of authority. And unfortunately, the normality is women leading church services and whatnot, but this is not biblically true or allowed. Feminist Buzzkills, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. New episodes drop Friday. Listen, subscribe, give us five stars.